This is the Yahoo Finance Sportsbook Podcast. Okay, welcome back to Sportsbook. Finally, we are approaching the end of the dog days of summer. September right upon us, and with it, people talking about football, college football, and then a week later, we've got pro football coming. But it's also the time when the baseball season approaches its most exciting days, at least I think. I don't see how anyone can argue with that. We are approaching the postseason. We're starting to look at how it's shaping up. Uh, my own Red Sox looking very good, although they've been in a, a week-long little bit of a, a slump. I think they'll be fine. Uh, and I think this is the time when baseball really makes its resurgence to the conversation, the cultural popularity. Uh, I think the last three seasons in a row, we've had terrific baseball postseasons. Maybe it's just me. Maybe as I get older, I, I watch more baseball and more golf. But I have found the last three postseasons to be terrific and exciting. We've had teams like the Cubs finally winning and teams like the Astros finally winning. And it's a good chance to bring in our friend of the program, uh, came and joined us earlier this summer on one of our live shows, and we wanted to have him on the podcast, Ben Ryder. He is a Sports Illustrated writer who has a new-ish book out, and that is Astro Ball, all about the Astros. Hey, Ben. Hey, Dan. How are you? Terrific. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I, the book's still new, I think. Yeah. About a, about a month and a half. Yeah, there you go. Oh, very new. You don't even need the ish. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with the book. Let's talk about it. How has the reception been? You know, I know you've done some readings. I think you kicked it all off in Houston. Uh, how have Astros fans responded, and how has the larger baseball world responded to the book? I mean, the reception, quite honestly, is everything I could have hoped for, uh, not just in sales, though it's selling at a time in which publishers say nothing that's not political doesn't sell. <laughs> right. It's uh a it's book numbers. that's not about Trump. Wow. <laughs> Nothing to do with Trump. He's not even mentioned in it. Um, no politics really whatsoever um, in the book. But it's number three on the uh, New York Times bestseller list for sports books, uh, which is great. But more than that has been just kind of the positive reception from all sorts of people, you know, all sorts of demographics. Astros fans have really embraced this book, of course. And when I launched the book in Houston, it had a huge turnout uh, that signing met, you know, hundreds of real, mostly Astros fans. But uh, I do sense a crossover as far as its topicality to investing people, you know, yeah. sports fans generally. Anybody who really wants a deep inside look at how the most modern of organizations, you know, in sports, but also just a modern organization of any type, operates in a modern world in which we often feel like we're overwhelmed by data, don't know how to properly use it. Um, the Astros, I think, really serve as a model and an obviously successful model of, of how to do it successfully. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that there's a lot of interest, not just from Astros fans. I mean, frankly, one of my first thoughts when you know I, I saw the book and then I read it and we had you on one of our live shows uh, a month or so ago was that one issue with baseball, maybe not an issue, but when we talk about the popularity of the, of the big four leagues, is baseball is certainly the most regional you know, it, mm -hmm. it is a sport where uh, ratings right now in local markets for a lot of teams are doing great. But then at the national level, when there's a primetime game, not always as consistent. Uh, you know, ESPN recently pulled back on its baseball coverage, which was a shame. They scaled back uh, their Sunday Night Baseball show, which I love. Uh, so that was sad. And I'm just glad to hear that it's not as though this interests only Astros fans uh, and maybe fans of other sports, too. Obviously, you know, Moneyball was a big thing, Michael Lewis, and that was on the A's, and that got made into a movie. 
But uh, if this is sort of the second coming of, of Moneyball, talk to me a little bit about that, about, you know, what was it the Astros did that was so revolutionary? You know, they had this proprietary uh, software program that, that tracked things for them. But, but by now, I would assume that every team, it's sort of like you're going to be behind if you don't have that, too. Right. You have, you have to have that. I would say that this is really kind of the first major revolution in thinking about how to assemble a baseball team since Astro Ball. I mean, since Moneyball, I should say. It's really the next step along the continuum, uh, the next evolution in the game. Yes, it's obviously analytically driven. As you say, if you don't have a very advanced analytics department, you're lost in the game. And I was surprised, actually, to learn that it wasn't until a couple of years ago that every team in Major League Baseball, uh, just even I should say even a couple of years ago, every team in Major League Baseball did not have an advanced analytics department. Mm. So the Astros certainly had a leg up. because They, they were, were doing sleeping. This. For a long time. That's right. Well, look, I mean, for a lot of years, the question was, are we an analytics-driven organization or are we a traditional organization, right? And the Astros' answer to that question is, we're both. You know, we're not Mm. just doing analytics. um, We're doing decision sciences, and we're folding in every possible source of information, not just numbers, but they brought back in traditional sources of predictive information, like those that came from scouts and things like that, and created a system to combine all of that information, the traditional information and the modern information, to make the best decisions that they could. You know, their their head of the data department is a guy named Sig Meidel, who's kind of the main character in the book in some ways. Right. He's a blackjack dealer turned NASA rocket scientist turned baseball data guy. Um, and when Luno brought Jeff Luno, the GM, brought him to Houston, he named him his director of decision sciences. And he was widely mocked for this. People thought he was being kind of, you know, presumptuous. They thought he was, I don't know, just being kind of highfalutin. But he wasn't. That's what he is. He's not just a guy who analyzes data um, full stop. Mm. He has a more holistic view of to how to bring in every source of information to guide the team. You know, we talk about the Astros having that system and, and the, you know, caring about analytics and prioritizing it maybe before other teams did. Uh, but also, I think, and I think you get into a little bit of this in the book, there is a ingredient in the success of a baseball team, and arguably it's, it's harder than in football. I mean, in the NFL, you know, the Pats are good every season. But in baseball, mm-hmm. I mean, there is a, a sort of ineffable part. I mean, analytics can only go so far. You can have the best tech. You can have the best data. You can hire three geniuses, uh, you know, and, and numbers guys who can do it a different way. But at the end of the day, you also have to have a group of guys that sort of magically jives, right? I mean, I think that's a lot of how it happened with the Cubs when the Cubs finally won a couple seasons ago. Uh, there's sort of something has to come together, and you can't engineer that, can you? No, you can't. You can get, put yourself in the best um, position to kind of have successful rolls of the dice. But uh, no, you, you have to allow for luck. And the Astros have always said that luck would play a role in, in their rebuild no matter what. Um, and you also have to allow for something uh, called RQ, which is rationality quotient. And I did a Bloomberg conference actually a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco that brought together a lot of tech people and athletes. And a lot of the Silicon Valley guys I was speaking to about the Astros process said it really rang true to them. And one of them said one of the top qualities he looks for in people he hires is something called RQ, which is rationality quotient, 
which is whether the person has the humility to recognize the things that he does not know, mm. right? Like you go into, you get into trouble when you think that your data, your decision-making process completely describes all possible um, potential factors in any decision. The Astros have a very high RQ. Like, yes, they work to, to describe every possible factor in what might lead to a good player and a good team. But they also allow that they don't know everything. So they do pursue things they can't quantify, like team chemistry, right? This is one of these holy grail type things that really might be the next frontier uh, for sports teams trying to put together a winner. Um, they don't know exactly what, how it works, what it's made up of. But they did bring in a 40-year-old last year, Carlos Beltran, who yeah. they thought would provide them some sort of leadership that they couldn't measure. And as I write in the book, he certainly did. So not knowing or, or being kind of confident enough in yourself to admit that you don't know certain things is a big part of this process as well. Right. It was Socrates, I think, who said the, the smartest man knows that he knows nothing, right? <laughs> exactly. So that applies. Uh, let, let's zoom out a little bit and, and look at baseball and, and sort of where pro baseball stands right now. Um, you know, again, a, another reason it's encouraging to me to hear about, you know, the good sales and the interest in your book. Uh, I mean, I've, I've sort of been on a, a baseball book kick recently. Uh, I just mm -hmm. finally read the book on the 85 Mets uh, by Jeff Perlman, which was uh, The Bad Guys Won. Right. I really enjoyed that. Um, I also had never gotten around to reading The Natural by Malamud. I, I read that. You know, I had seen the, the movie but I hadn't read mm -hmm. the book. Uh, and then one of my favorite novels is Philip Roth, you know, the great American novel, which is about baseball and is zany and wild and wacky. Uh, and yet, you know, as someone who reports on the business of sports and ratings and money, uh, you do get that feeling that the NFL, you know, for all the talk of, oh, ratings dip and politics and Trump angrily tweeting about the NFL, there's the NFL and then sort of there's everything else in American sports below it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I'm not trying to feed that too much because I also think, on the other hand, this idea that, oh, baseball needs to change or baseball is losing popularity, that's been a, a sort of hot take for years and years and years and years. It is not new uh, and, it, and it's not totally true. But I guess I would just say there, there's enough truth to it that I have noticed this year more than before people picking up on the idea that either the league or the commissioner or the players, the biggest stars in the game, need to do something. There's something they need to do. They need to be more exciting or interesting or they need to be funnier. They need to use social media. And, of course, this came to a head a few weeks ago with this little, um, I guess, kerfuffle uh, mm -hmm. with, with Mike Trout and uh, Rob Manfred, the commissioner. You know, someone had asked Manfred, you know, you've got Mike Trout, who most, most baseball people agree is like the best player in the game. But he's just not that big a star outside of baseball. And is that on him? Is that on the team? Is that on the league? And Manfred kind of fed into it and, and you know, basically said that, that Trout's boring. Uh, I don't think he directly said that. <laughs> but, um, but did you, you know, what was your take on all that? Is it on the players to, to be more popular off the field? Uh, well, look, like, especially these days, we tend to view things um, through such a simple lens, right? Like, you can't hold two ideas in your head at once. It's either like baseball is thriving or baseball is dying, <laughs> right. right? And that's the only answer. It's one or the other. And it's just not true. It's much more complicated than that. I mean, you look at revenue since 2005, baseball's revenue as a league has doubled from under $5 billion to more than $10 billion yep. in the last 12 years. Clearly a lot's going right uh, for the game. But yeah, at the same time, there are things that it needs to address to kind of shore itself up. I mean, one would be attendance, like Jeff Passan has a really good column on Yahoo right now 
uh, kind of digging into the fact that attendance is dropping in person attendance. You know, it's fall. It's going to be under 70 million fans in stadiums for the first time since 2003. Seven different teams are experiencing, you know, 5,000 fan drop a night, uh, which sounds like a lot, and it is, but clearly people are, you know, taking in their sports in different ways now, as we know, because of technology. Um, so I don't know. Like, I'm not sure if just attendance itself is a great metric. And popularity as well, you know. Yes, Mike Trout, greatest baseball player possibly in the history of the world. I think that's it's certainly possible that we have it right now. And wow. yet if you look at something like Q-Score, right, which is, I don't know, believe it or not, but this company Q-Score uh, says that only one in five Americans even know who Mike Trout is, and he's got the same Q-Score as Kenneth Fareed who's a backup power forward for the Brooklyn Nets who played 14 and a half minutes a game last year. Like, yeah, that's a problem, right? Like maybe it's Trout's fault. Maybe he's just not personally that exciting. I think the league probably has a lot to do with it as far as promoting its players, but clearly there's some room for improvement there. Um, but maybe it'll take, you know, the next Jeter to come along and maybe it's Aaron judge. I don't know but kind of the right. next just like naturally magnetic guy playing in a major market who can carry so much water for everybody else. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, mentioned Jeter because that's a nice segue. I mean, one of our favorite debates here uh, amongst the Yahoo Finance sports people that we love <laughs> to have is uh, the idea of, of the face of baseball. You know, and, and we yeah. can do it for any sport, but for some reason I think it's kind of most interesting with baseball because it is a question. I mean, with, with football, you know, there's Brady – there's, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of obvious the guys. And then there was Peyton before he retired, um, and in other sports, you know, the NBA. It's like LeBron, Harden, Steph, Westbrook. But in baseball, if we talk about who is the biggest star in the league, and you were just saying, you know, Trout, he's so good, but no one would say it's Trout. At least if we're, if we're talking about, you know, it depends how you define your terms. But for me, this discussion is about people who aren't big baseball fans. What current players are they even aware of that they recognize that are marketable that can be in an ad and they can point and say, "I know who that is." It's not Mike Trout. Uh, and you mentioned Judge. You know, some people say that you could argue that the most famous baseball player still is Jeter, even though he's retired. I mean, he owns a team, so he's still in the league in a sense. There's just no one at that level. Uh, I say, I guess that Bryce Harper is the closest thing. But but what's your take on that? The biggest star in the league right now? Oh, I mean, I I do think that there's there's kind of this long Jeter hangover. Like he played this role so easily and so naturally for so many years that the league didn't kind of have to do what the NBA did at the same time and really focus on developing its players as personalities and also kind of allowing them to, to show themselves and even be political in a way that maybe is not accepted in baseball, certainly not accepted in the NFL. I mean, I also think that it's just a different sort of sport. We were talking about its kind of regionality um, and its international kind of uh, presence as well. And I think that, um, you, know, you know, a lot of these people are huge stars in their home markets or perhaps in right. their home countries for some of them, but aren't that kind of like international or national touchstone that we're looking for. I think uh, I would have said at least a couple months ago before he got hurt that it was Aaron Judge, just based on his like incredible talent, what he did in the home run derby last year. And he's in New York. You know, he's a nice guy. He's in New York. He probably has the like potential to be that guy. But, you know, I agree with you. I don't think it's Harper, actually. Hmm. I don't. Like, for as good as he is, 
like he also doesn't seem to have that like extra dimension that really really captivates people. He's not like the Ken Griffey Jr. type right. who at least was packaged as you know the backwards hat, the swing, yes. the smile, the, kid. the talent, yep. the kid. That's a good example. Like there isn't a guy like that uh, right now in Major League Baseball, and it's you know for sure it's partly just who the players are, but it's certainly partly a marketing issue as well. And is that a problem? Yeah, probably. I mean, again, I just think this is a sport that's just so different from the NBA or even football. You know, it's not like National Football Sunday. It's like these games are on in every bar in every city across the country, 162 plus nights a year. It's like a cumulative sort of thing. It's a cumulative sort of business as opposed to like these big events every week. I think it certainly adds up. But at the same time, yes, I mean, they certainly could try harder to develop some of these guys into stars. And I do think that the young generation has, you know, potential to become this way. Like they seem much more savvy, much more willing to be open, obviously much more demonstrative on the field. I mean, this is a sport in which like you weren't supposed to celebrate, right? (laughs) After you did something good for a long time, those sort of unwritten rules seem to be going away a little bit. Uh, It's certainly a transitional era as far as superstars in baseball. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm glad you you point out someone like Ken Griffey is a good example. When we have this discussion, I mean, I think the issue is you've got players who are really good in terms of their skill, like Trout. Then there are guys who are interesting, charismatic, funny, have loud personalities. I'd say Mookie Betts, and that's not to say he's not good. He's been incredible this season. Uh, but right. you know, Francisco Lindor. And yep. when we do this face of baseball argument, we often mention from golf, Tiger Woods, where it's like lightning strikes once in a generation, and you had the fact that the best player in the whole sport was also extremely compelling, had this personal story, had this um, you know, interesting shine to him. Uh, now, charisma might be a little generous with Woods, but, but it, was, it was almost more like the inverse, where because he was so walled off and he barely did press, that added to how interesting. In baseball right now, it's almost like we don't have both in one package. Uh, I agree with you. Judge has the potential. But, you know, some of those other guys, uh, you're right. I mean, they have the potential to be big regional stars. But being a nationally recognized star is something different. I would say the most recent example, other than Jeter, is Ortiz. Oh, yeah. I think that definitely. I mean, certainly combined that uh, regional appeal with the kind of international appeal and the persona, for sure. Uh, let's end this way. You know, if we go back to the idea of baseball making changes, some people think there need to be changes, uh, you know, the popularity of the sport— Obviously, at the uh, league office level, you know, Manfred is making some changes. Uh, They've got the pitch clock in the minors now and thought to be almost certainly coming to the majors. You know, they've they've limited mound visits. They've limited how often you can step outside uh, the batter's box. They're trying to make the games a little shorter because they can often be so long. Uh, What is your take in general on these changes? And if you want to get into any specifics, that's fine, too. But, you know, there are people who are kind of purists, and then there are people who think, you know what, um... This is a good thing. It's good if baseball modernizes. Yeah, I mean, look, sports are constantly changing. I mean, I'll I'll be honest. I think that the idea that like, oh, baseball games are too long, uh, it's a bit of a straw man for me. I mean, I don't see if games I think are like three hours and four minutes right now. I don't see if you cut them down to like two fifty three, right. where like the kids are going to be flowing back <laughs> into the game. Like, right. man, those eleven minutes, I can like go on Facebook or Snapchat or whatever with that time I'm saving. I don't believe that. I mean, sure. Like, I guess you could speed it up a little bit. Um, there are certain things I'd like to change. You know, I think 
I think we're not yet at the era of robo umps, but I think that yes, you can give umpires technological assistance, calling balls and strikes. I like the idea of something like they do in Grand Slam tennis, you know, with like a challenge system yes. where it becomes almost like a feature, not a bug. Love that. You know, like a big strike three call. You can challenge it. You look up the scoreboard. Everybody's very excited. Yeah. And then like Hawkeye or whatever shows you uh, the proper call. God I think forbid, though. Actually... What if that makes the game even longer? Uh-oh. <laughs> well, that's fine. I mean, it takes like 30 seconds in tennis, right? right? I, I think it'll be fine. I mean, labor-wise, I think there's a lot that the league can do to make itself better. First of all, I think you got to start paying minor league players a living wage. That one seems obvious and i think it'll probably have all sorts of unintended positive factors that the uh, parsimonious owners aren't even thinking of mm. but i think a big one as far as competitive balance is to put in a salary floor right like the astros took advantage of this and i write about it a lot in my book how you don't have to spend money um on a team that's not going to win anyway you can squirrel it away you're going to get revenue sharing anyway your owner's going to turn a profit so you're literally not incentivized to win well, you know, we were talking about attendance before. You look at the seven teams with the 5,000 drop in attendance. These are bad teams. Like, winning does lead to attendance, right? But the, the ones that have dropped, the Marlins, the Jays, the Royals, the Tigers, the Orioles, and then the Pirates, who were probably the best of that group and not by much. So I think if you kind of make it so that teams have to spend a certain amount on their players and maybe force them to try to be a little bit competitive at all times, that could also have a lot of positive results across the league. Plus, it's only fair, right? Like, it seems yes. kind of ridiculous that owners don't literally do not have to, have to spend like a dime really and can still profit off this. Yes. Uh, we'll see which changes get made. We'll see what it means for the game. Uh, you know, there, there is a sort of uh, lasting purity to baseball. Uh, you know, I probably sound like, a, like an old soul, but I know you agree. There's just something about baseball that the other major sports don't have. I mean, one thing I always love to say when we talk about, oh, the league making changes or trying to attract young fans, it's not going anywhere. Baseball's doing okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly, in a, I mean, look, $10 billion revenue <laughs> last year. Like I, the, the reports of the sky falling are a little bit premature, Dan. Yes. Uh, let's, let's wrap up this way. You know, when you joined us on one of our live shows recently, we, uh, we made you... Give us a prediction, and you picked Astros again to go back-to-back -back win the World Series this year. I'll hold you to that. But for this season, for the postseason, any other predictions, thoughts on which teams might rise? Any surprises? You think the Red Sox uh, will collapse or will go? I guess you'd probably see them in the ALCS with the Astros. Well, there are so few teams in it, really, at least in the American League, yeah. that it's hard to see surprises, in part because of this imbalance that we've been talking about. Um, I will say that one team, I think, is really being overlooked, perhaps, uh, behind the three superpowers in the AL, the Red Sox, Yankees, and Astros, is the Indians. You know, like they made the best trade deadline acquisition, in my opinion, of them all, adding exactly what they needed in Brad Hand, probably the best left-handed relief pitcher in the game. They have two, like, completely talk about, you know, over underrated, like, players or players who aren't getting covered enough. Two complete superstars in that lineup, Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor, who don't get nearly the press of like Judge or Betts or even the yeah. Astros guys. Um, nobody wants to see the Indians in the playoffs. And of course, <laughs> as it's shaping up right now, that's going to be the Astros' first round opponent, uh, assuming they get past the A's, who are doing just something incredible again under Billy Bean right now. Right. It's funny that people undervalue the Indians when they were in the World Series uh, not so long ago. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, look, that just the game is so polarized that you look at, you know, the super teams. But, you know, in baseball particularly, 
the best team, in fact, usually doesn't win the World Series. Yeah. What about NL, Ben? Who's going to the World Series from the NL? Oh, man. The NL is a bit of a uh, poo-poo platter right now, I think. <laughs> I mean, look, I still think it's the Dodgers. Like, I, I do. They've been my pick all along. They've now drawn after a terrible run. They're just one game back in the NL West. They're going to be a really hard out in the playoffs. Um, I'm still picking the Dodgers over the Cubs. Wow. It would be quite a thing if uh, the World Series is an exact rematch in the same year that the NBA Finals was an exact rematch. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. But look, I think that these are the two best teams. We can get into like a whole another thing about whether um, baseball is becoming financially imbalanced once again, you know, with all with the kind of the data landscape flatten flattening. If all the inefficiencies that small market teams could once exploit have now been kind of eliminated. And now you're looking at teams from the giant cities being good again, whether it's the Yankees, the Cubs, the Dodgers and the Astros. That's another problem that the league will have to face. But that one's probably a little down the road. <laughs> That'll have to be your next book, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks, Dan. Okay, well, this was another sports book. Uh, we love talking about all of the different sports and business news when they converge. Interesting look at the Astros in this book. The book is Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All by Ben Ryder. And you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben Ryder. That's R-E-I-T-E-R. And you can find us on Twitter. And we love hearing what you think. Tell us if you are as big a baseball fan as you ever have been in the past and what you think about the declining in-park attendance. What might get you back to the ballpark? Let us know. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the Sportsbook Podcast. We come out every Thursday. Thanks. Thanks.